Hello, welcome to True Hoop with me, Gerard Hector, and I have a special guest with me. Uh, he is the founder and director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. He is the author of several books, including the New York Times bestseller, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and Stamp from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, which won the National Book Award for Nonfiction in 2016. He's also the host and executive producer of the ESPN Plus series, Skin in the Game, which looks at racism in sports and where and how to challenge it. Professor Ibram X. Kendi, welcome. Thank you for having me. No problem. All right. So I, I want to get into uh, this right away off the top. The Center for Anti-Racist Research at BU, and you have been in the news a lot lately um, for allegations from ex-staffers, critics, etc., for this audacious, uh, this tremendous project of using anti-racist research to really combat one of the ills uh, that faces our time and recent layoffs of staff and research that you and the center said that these were plans of yours that have not come to pass um, amidst $55 million in money raised or questions of financial impropriety. I will, I do want to say BU did look into this and of the 55 million raised, BU said that the majority of the money is still sitting unspent in BU accounts. So there is no impropriety on that on that standpoint. But if you can just talk to us about what actually happened uh, when you started this this center and with the layoffs and the research that was supposed to come come to fruition that hasn't thus far, like the graduate program in anti-racist research and the national uh, racial data tracker. Well, I think I think first and foremost, um, I think it's important to contextualize why we're even having this conversation. Um, unfortunately, over the last three years, but especially over the last year, there's been a number of organizations, particularly nonprofits, that have had to engage in major pivots, that have had to uh, engage in major layoffs. And, and, and part of that reason is because there's been a pretty significant decline in the amount of money uh, that our organizations are raising. Um, but most of those stories have been one-day stories. Most, in most cases, uh, people recognize this larger climate uh, that we're facing, this financial climate, and understood that uh, you know, if an organization needs to be financially sustainable, it has to sort of pivot and, you know, potentially, and of course, in a difficult way, reduce staff. Unfortunately, with our center, um, the story has been different. Uh, people assumed financial impropriety, uh, which is not true. People have assumed that um, media, I should say reporters, have given voice to people who were upset about being laid off um, or about the layoffs. And I, I think you can imagine that in any organization, if you give a, you know, a microphone to somebody who has just been laid off, they're probably not going to have nice things to say about the person who, who did that layoff or even about the organization. Um, and so I think that that's probably one of the most tragic aspects of this, that what's happened at the center is quite normal in, in this specific environment in which so many organizations are having to reduce staff and restructure themselves. 
But we're a Black-led organization. We're an organization engaged in anti-racist research. Um, we're, we're led by a public figure. Um, that's what people call me. And and so the, the level of scrutiny and, you know, it's, it's just much higher for our organization, unfortunately. Um, and I appreciate that. Thank you. I, I would I would guess if you were to go back to six, seven years ago, you probably didn't envision this as something that would happen. This being uh, a major university giving you uh, the platform to be the head of um, a center for anti-racist research and also to be a national book award winner and also to be a public figure, as you said, has been named uh, a MacArthur fellow, like all of these things, right? So there's a level of sort of, even in the most positive thinking people, right? Like, I don't know that most people envision like, wow, like getting (laughs) to the top, maybe faster than they thought, or this amazing things happening. So all of that's happening to you, right? All at the same time, where I believe you genuinely want to promote anti-racism and stamp out racism worldwide, but particularly here in the US. So what would you say to people who were like, you know, I agree with with his his vision for anti-racism, but maybe he isn't the right person to lead this because it's a tremendous undertaking looking at research, policy, narrative, advocacy, and maybe he just didn't have the experience to do all of this. Well, it's interesting that we're 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 talking about this particularly within the context of of you know basketball or even mm-hmm. sports mm-hmm. Be- because you know as you know um there are rookies or first or second year ballers who, who come into the nba without much experience and they they win championships uh, or they make it to the to the nba championship and they don't necessarily win the championship uh but they learn a tremendous amount uh, as they go through that that process and and they they of course uh, transform that learning into being better ballers into being better leaders and 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 so i i think unfortunately uh, you know i and other um leaders aren't necessarily looked upon in the same way mm-hmm. uh, you know in other words we're 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 not necessarily given the opportunity to to not win the championship uh to to have to make major changes in our in our jump shot, uh, to have to make major changes in in how we play the game, and and how to make major changes in sort of how we relate to people so that we can win. Um, and so I, I think I'm I you know certainly it, it has been the case that um, that there you know I can understand someone saying that that. Only someone with 50 years or 20 years or five years of experience should be leading a, a major American research center. But then the, the net effect of that is that likely only old white men mm-hmm. uh, will be leading these types of centers. Because the fact of the matter is, is that people of color and, and women have been shut out of these centers for a very long time, shut out of leadership positions. We're learning on the fly. And, and that's precisely, you know, what I'm doing. And our center will be so much stronger and so much better and so much impactful, you know, as our, you know, I and, and my sort of leadership tact, you know, continue to learn and change and grow. And we're so excited about, about this new pivot and this new structure, just as we're obviously extremely devastated that we had to let people go. Uh, yeah. And the last thing before we move on to 
the skin of the game series. Um, you mentioned the pivot. The the center has pivoted to a fellowship model um, as opposed to what, what you were doing before. What would you say is the biggest lesson you learned um, in the three years here and that you're going to now take and apply to what you're going to do differently going forward? Well, the, the irony, um, you know, about a lot of the attacks or even criticism on, on, on our center is that the vast majority of those, the challenges that we face that even people have pointed out are going to be uh, corrected in the new model. (laughs) Right. And, and so, and I think, again, like, I, I think that to me, this is part of a larger challenge, which is that the the job of a it's very 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 hard for any creator of a startup to uh, create a, a structure and that that structure be the structure that lives forever mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know with that organization it's routine that at some point particularly for organizations that um that carry on and that make an impact, that there's a major pivot. And, and that major pivot is one in which um, the challenges that, that an organization faced um, are not brought into sort of a, a new organization. And, and so that's really what, what, what we're doing here. Um, like many other organizations that are praised uh, for, for these types of pivots while we're criticized, but to your answer, you know, I think one, there are many things that I that I learned, and you know, as a scholar, even as someone who strives to be anti-racist, I'm constantly encouraging people to be self-reflective and and to be self-critical. But probably the biggest learning, uh, you know, that 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 I had, you know, is is that it, it is incredibly important to to create a a sustainable model and and look consistently and constantly 20 and 30 years out just as you're looking at the next 2 years mm-hmm. and 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 so with this new fellowship program uh that that we're building it it allows us to accommodate massive swings in in fundraising so what we've experienced over the last 2 years where there's been a decline, you know, that could increase, right? And or it could decline again. And and you know, we have a enough endowment funding that we can have a baseline number of fellows so that if we have a down sort of fundraising year, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't cause us to have to lay people off, right? Mm-hmm. Just as we have a great year, we can increase the number of fellows. Mm-hmm. And and so for us, you know, just, you know, thinking about and learning about the financial landscape for racial justice organizations. Um, and that, you know, 2020 in many ways was a, um, you know, w- was really outside of the norm. Um, unfortunately, uh, I think has been, you know, something that we, we've really learned in the last three years. We hope that that 2020 was the start of something new, but unfortunately it wasn't. I appreciate that, and thank you for 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 addressing that. I want to pivot to the series um, "Skin in the Game." Um, in in the opening, um, you know, credit roll, you say at the end of the day, I'm just a kid from Queens who loves sports 
and confronts racism. What is it about sports that makes it a fertile ground uh, for your work? And what do you hope, or what did you hope this series would do as it relates to promoting anti-racist thoughts? Well, I think one of the one of the interventions that I've sought to make with my work has not only been to define terms for people so they can understand what it means to be racist or even anti-racist, what is a racist or anti-racist idea or policy, but so that they can use that terminology and those definitions to see inequality, to see racism in places that were unsuspecting, that they didn't see it before. And, and, and obviously, uh, you know, people, some people view sports as a sort of a, a place or a space where we can, quote, get away from social injustice, mm. um, as opposed to a place where, unfortunately, racial injustice and, and racism is, is, is pervasive. And, 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 and I think what I'm hoping, though, is that despite the pervasiveness of racism, that through Skin in the Game, people will see not only how it's operating, but how athletes are resisting it and how they're almost trying and winning, in many cases, this game or even losing this game within the game mm-hmm. as they're playing you know, the game that, that we can see, mm-hmm. which can hopefully allow us to appreciate these human beings that much more. <laughs> like they're fighting or battling so many different games at the same time. Yeah, no, uh, I, I'm with you on that. And and I think that seeing the humanity um, in athletes is one of the things that we and I do primarily a lot here at True Hoop is, yes, I understand that for fans, they want enjoyment and entertainment, right? Whatever's going on in their life for the two hours that I turn on this game, whatever sport it may be, I just want to be entertained. I don't want to be, because whatever's going on in my life is hard enough. I don't want to hear about your life on top of that too. Just do some cool things and great, two hours will be done. Um, and while I don't agree with that, I understand that inclining, right? If you, you know, because life is hard. Um, however, athletes have a, a power and influence and often power and influence are things that we in society conflate. Um, and they're not quite the same thing, right? But they're often lumped in together. How do you see athletes and their power and influence and how should they be using it? I'm actually happy you, you 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 mentioned that we should distinguish between power and and influence and 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 I think that athletes uh, most athletes are in very uh, important positions of influence, but they aren't necessarily in positions of power and and if we understand power particularly the the most ultimate form of power is the ability to make policy uh, or to change policy that impacts the lives of you know of human beings then certainly athletes have the power through their uh, players associations to uh, change policy as it relates to their leagues right and to their games but they don't necessarily have the power to change policy as it relates to employees at a corporation or citizens of a particular um, town uh, you know, or state. However, they do have the influence 
to inspire those employees or those citizens to demand of those in policymaking positions to create more equitable and just uh, policies. And, and I think many athletes are using that influence. Uh, and in, you know, what's, what's interesting is without question, many of us tune into sports to be entertained but but I, I also think that that there are many people who tune into sports to be inspired. And and that even that inspiration and, and, and entertainment can be intertwined. Wow, they just did something that's impossible mm-hmm. on the court. Maybe I can do something that's impossible in my job, right? Mm-hmm. But but then you know, inspire, you know, again, us to, you know, organize against police violence. You know, athletes have that level of influence. Yeah. Uh, um, and the NBA of many leagues is one of the ones that are at the forefront of it, even though we hear true hoop, because as our name implies, we look, we seek the truth, right? The NBA has its own issues in terms of, I often say that the NBA gets credit a lot of times for not being the NFL. Right. But I'm like, (laughs) that's a, that's a low bar to jump over. Right. I mean, so, you know, when you talk about what athletes can do from an influential and power standpoint, they sort of have some, they have conflict, right? Because there's a point in which, when you get to be super successful as an athlete, the money that you make starts to separate you and insulate you from the day-to-day concerns that many people have. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't be a person who's black and has a net worth of $50 million and you won't get stopped and harassed by the police. We There's plenty of examples of that. But the day-to-day right experiences of, you know, the person working three jobs to just maintain rent, like that's that has long since left your consciousness, right? And so it, it 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 creates this challenge, I feel like, many times for athletes to really understand, okay, I can do these things because I have this power and this, this, this influence, excuse me, but maybe I have to be careful because if I rock the boat too much, that's going to mess the dollars up. And if I mess the dollars up, then I've got problems, right? So there's almost a, right, a, a little bit of a chain reaction, right? Because it's like, Someone else controls my purse strings. And so I have to be careful about what I say and do if I want to keep these funds rolling in. Indeed. And I think that that concern that 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 uh, athletes have is, I think, a concern that's shared by by many, you know, black and brown folks, you know, of wealth um, and who are higher income. But I, I what I what I, I think is important for for those uh, black athletes to just know scientifically is and and historically is that the people who were most likely to be lynched were actually landowners were were black folks who owned extremely mm-hmm. successful businesses mm-hmm. were were black folks who were uh, upwardly mobile um and who uh had a tremendous amount of uh, either economic or political uh, resources. And, and studies have shown that as Black Americans climb the economic ladder, uh, they're actually more likely to face racist policies mm-hmm. and practices. And so that's the irony, right? You have uh, rich athletes who don't want to confront racism because they think that somehow they've escaped it when in reality they're facing uh, forms of racism 
um, that it, it, you know is 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 actually quite dire as those with tremendous amounts of wealth try to keep their wealth and try to prevent black people from climbing you know up that ladder and and so in many ways they're undermining even their own economic uh, aspirations by not joining this larger fight against racism so I, I think it's important for athletes to to think about not just their own individual situation but the larger structure that's in inhibiting them and and what I mean by that is you know if if if, if an athlete is, is 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 making a few million dollars a year, then in a potentially different type of society where racism doesn't exist, they could be making more. Like that's what mm-hmm. you know. And I, I'm I'm saying you know clearly, I think the more progressive thing to do is to say, oh, it's important for for athletes to care about working class Black folks, you know, to be altruistic. But on, I I guess for me, I believe that people are more. Uh, sort of motivated by their own self-interest and it's in the self-interest of rich athletes to fight racism. No, that, 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 that makes sense. Um, you know, a lot of what you're talking about echoes a little bit of, um, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Um, the legendary New York times, former New York times writer, uh, sports columnist, Bill Roden's $40 million slaves, right? This idea of being confined, even though $40 million sounds like a ton of money, which it is right. In actuality, but you are still sort of limited, right, within that box. To your point, if this was a anti-racist society, you would be making way more. But that's that's not the reality that we're in. I kind of want to pivot off that. Do you Can think? I just yeah, one quick thing. I remember just very quickly when there was the the last strike in the NBA, mm-hmm. and I remember when some of the athletes started thinking about or talking about creating like they were already sort of creating games mm-hmm. and organizing games. And there was talk about the athletes themselves creating their own league. I was just going there. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> and and I, I, the reason why I'm bringing that up, you know, I'm happy you were going there is, is because that uh, was, I, I remember there were very prominent commentators who opposed those ideas with racist ideas. They were like, these, these black athletes can't right. own a team, can't develop a league, can't run a league, can't sort of run a, run a, run a business. Um, and, 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 you know, in reality, why, why can't they not? I mean, you know, we, we have so many athletes who literally, uh, like Jay-Z said, I'm a business mm-hmm. man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are, they are the attraction, Right. That is what you turn on your television, you pull up your phone, or you paid money to go see. That's what you go to see. You don't go to see the dude who owns the arena, or that's most people don't even know who that is, or could pick that person out of a lineup. Um, that would be the way to do it. And it would obviously take, let's use the NBA as, as an example, it would take LeBron and KD and Steph and the top guys, because whatever NBA players want to tell you, those are the guys that decide what everybody else is doing. If they're all on board and doing it, everybody, the rank and file will all say, okay, we're, this is what we're doing. Could they do a thing where they say, because we, what we're doing, what they do right now is supplement these owners who own these arenas, right? And fill it with dates for games. Well, forget you guys. We're going to get a soundstage somewhere and wherever, build them in places all across the country. We're going to own it, right? We're going to have people that we hire. Here's our investment in the teams. That would be a very, a, a, a very profitable league. Um, you know, whether or not it happens and, you know, it's a, again, 
when you get to a level like LeBron and Steph and Katie, it's like, mm, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's a lot for them to take on. Well, and it's, it's, it's almost like the conundrum that you have just, you have uh, executives at uh, companies who are very highly paid, but at the same time, they're, they're looking at the balance sheets and, and stating that if they were to start their own business, they could the, the, the sort of upside is so much greater than this than their current salary. Mm-hmm. However, they're like, it's a tremendous risk. Yes. Right. And so it's this sort of conundrum. Do I stay in this sort of executive position uh, where I'm sort of uh, where I will receive this this salary if, you know, if you're sort of you know, a max player in the NBA, like that's going to happen. You know, it's guaranteed. I already have my contract. Um, Or do I move to create a new business where I could potentially make more, but I could also make less. Correct. Correct. (laughs) You know, and it's, I suspect that's, you know, what these, what, what these athletes are thinking just as regular folks, you know, are thinking that, you know, as they work for uh, companies, as opposed to building their own. No, yeah, and I think that's that's exactly dead on. In one of the uh, episodes of Skin in the Game, you looked at the media landscape and how in sports that are predominantly uh, people of color, the newsrooms in sports are predominantly white and male. And that is often not the lens that these sports should be covered through. And what we've seen as a result of that um, are a lot of athletes that have their own platforms, whether it be podcasts, whether they write and they do their different things. And you were a champion and encouraged that more athletes should do that. Um, and as someone in the media, but as someone who is black, I push back at that notion. I, I like the idea that they say things like that because it's great. And I can, there's a way in which when athletes talk to one another, if I don't have that built in trust with that athlete already, I'm not going to get the same response. But even if I do, there is a level of peer to peer connection they have that we as reporters will never have and media members will never have. However, in my opinion, athlete-led media is just another form of propaganda because, right, they're not going to get into the real nitty-gritty of what is really happening. And so I kind of want to explore that with you. Like, where where can can there be some kind of synergy or symbiosis between actual media and athlete-led media? So I, I think there, I think that there could be, and 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 I think that. The irony is that as athletes continue to create their own media platforms and pull viewers and readers away from quote, traditional sort of sports media, it's at some point, if it hasn't already, going to create a crisis. Uh, a crisis because you know sports media is 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 just does not have the, the viewers and the attention that it once did and then of course the athlete led media is looking for legitimacy right so it isn't just viewed by the public as you know as as mere propaganda mm-hmm. and and i guess what what i'm hoping is that at some point both sides will will realize that a potential uh connection or fusion or symbiosis is is actually better better for both um i think the challenge though is that is a lack of trust yeah 
the lack of trust between, let's say, the Black athlete and, and the white reporter, which then, where does the Black reporter sit? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're almost in the crossfire, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak. And, and, and so in many ways, it will likely be, you know, Black and brown reporters who broker uh, you know that relationship, and I think that's sort of on on on, on individual levels. You know, is happening. <laughs> no, uh, absolutely, one hundred percent. All right, so you are a kid from Queens, which means you're a sports fan. Um, so I assume you're a Knicks fan coming from from New York City. How yeah. how are how are you feeling about your? Listen, th- th- this is good stuff, man. The Knicks have been competently run now for the last I don't know ever since Leon got there. They've been run well. You made the playoffs last season, won a playoff series. I mean, things are trending up. How are you feeling as a Knicks fan? So I'm feeling I'm feeling good. Obviously, I'm, I'm you know to 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 have you know a team that I think most people are are are, are recognizing is a second sort of tier team in the Eastern Conference. Uh, there are some who who believe because of all of the. Uh, player changes with with some of the top teams that a that a team with more consistency who hasn't sort of changed over that much could sort of make noise <laughs> in the Eastern Conference. So of course, as Knicks fans, we we believe the impossible. Um, but on the other hand, having such a great team last year and then Julius Randle getting injured, it, it almost it's sort of felt yet again a situation <laughs> in which something has to happen. <laughs> you know, whether Julius Randle getting injured or Charlie Ward being body slammed, <laughs> you know, what we have been hoping for. So hopefully this year there won't be anything like that and, and, and we can show how truly good we could be. Uh, the, the Knicks are a very good squad. I think like Jalen Brunson was an excellent signing for you guys. I just, again, I think the team is being run and managed well. You don't have any bad contracts. You've got draft capital. Look, you guys can be players and make a potential trade for someone to pair, you know, and kind of move this thing forward. But I think, you know, Nick fans need to live in the land of, of <laughs> keep keep optimism there, but also live in the land of reality. And just, hard for us. <laughs> yeah, it's very hard for you guys. And just, hey, make the playoffs consistently year over year. And in those magical years, you get lucky and you go on a run. That's it. If you think about it, if you guys have that, that's better than what you've done the last 20 years. Way better. See, it's hard to live in the land of reality when <laughs> most Knicks fans have never tasted a championship. That's <laughs> true. You know, I've, in my whole life, <laughs> you know, and most Knicks fans who have been, who were fans in the 90s, felt we were cheated away, you know, from from a few titles. So it's, it's, it's just hard. Uh, there's so much resentment there. I mean, uh, if your man Jock Starks hits one more three, you guys win the title. I mean, come on, there's it just things happen, right? It's basketball, it's, you know. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, but you know, I, 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 I'm, I am excited about about this this team. I, I, I don't, um, and and it's going to be very interesting to to see what they you know, what they do this year. And I think the other thing is the team is like, has, it looks like Tibbs is going to go with a, a nine-man ro- rotation. And <laughs> those are nine really good players. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it's a really deep squad. I was looking at the ESPN just released. It's, I think they're down to the top, top, uh, yeah. 
hundred players. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, the Knicks had five players. Yeah, I, yeah. I believe. You know, and yeah. and which to me is is a, is a large number for one team. It's very. Listen again. Things are looking good. Things <laughs> you, you're you're a, a more. You're an above average squad. You're run <laughs> competently. Like let's just maintain even keel. It's hard. I know because you want to win a championship so bad, but I mean. Think about it. In the history of the NBA, like the Lakers and Celtics have like the majority of championships. Not the teams don't win that often. It's just hard, right? It's really hard to do it. Very, very hard. Uh, but Professor well, Kendi, I, I thank LeBron you for your time. Taking his talents to, <laughs> you know, to Manhattan. <laughs> if LeBron took his talents, if KD and Kyrie came, all yeah, then listen, it just doesn't work out like that sometimes. <laughs> but uh, I appreciate your time. Uh, let the people know where they can find you and also um what to look out for next um, from the BU Center for Anti-Racist Research. So everyone can find me at IbramXKendi.com and my handles are IbramXK, I-B-R-A-M-X-K. Um, and with our with our center, we're actually going to be to be launching our, our racial data tracker, you know, in the next few weeks. So I'm really excited about that. Excellent. And I thank you for your time, sir. All right. Thank you for having me.